Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. All right, so I'm going to talk you through the, the ascending levels of the foundations all the way up to the technicalities that you need to start and scale any business. Um, before I do that, I just want to get one thing out of the way. Brexit. So, kind of had enough of that. But the talk of Brexit came up recently in my household. Um, and it reminded me of something that happened a few years ago with my wife. And my wife's a very reserved individual. Like, you know, she likes security. Gucci, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's security, you're right, you're definitely right. Um, and a few years ago when there was the last sort of recession, um, my wife took me shopping. Now, when I take my wife shopping, it's Gucci Armani. When she takes me shopping, it's Tesco's and Sainsbury's. And um, this is a big event because I usually resist going shopping. So it's a memorable experience, usually for the arguments that we have. Um, and she took me to Sainsbury's. Uh, and it, it, financially back then, the economy wasn't so great. And everyone was a little bit worried. Um, and we're shopping along, and of course, we're there for about 17 and a half years. Um, and it's kind of pissing me off, if I'm quite honest. I'm pushing the trolley, then I'm pushing the second trolley, then I'm pushing the third trolley. You know, like when you go on holiday. Um, and we get to the um, alcohol aisle, which is pretty big in Peterborough. Uh, and that sort of makes things mildly better. And back then, they were doing recession offers. 10 cans of Stella, five quid. Now, I don't drink anymore, but back then I used to have the odd can of beer if I was watching Liverpool play to drown my sorrows. You shop, you, you pick up the shopping, you put it in the trolley. It's a pretty simple affair, not complicated. I do that, my wife taps me on the shoulder. I turn around, she turns around, she picks up the beers, puts them straight back on the shelf. Can't have those, love. We're in a recession. Carry on shopping, you know. I thought about saying something, but I value my life. So I carried on shopping, um, moping around. And then you get to the cosmetic aisle. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a Walmart. You know, it's so long, there's an echo. Well, that's how long the cosmetic aisle is in the supermarkets nowadays. There's frickin' creams for everything. So there's face cream, hand cream, foot cream, nail cream, Cracked heel cream, and get this eye cream. Who puts cream in their eyes? I have no idea. I'm obviously not with the, uh, the program. Anyway, she finally gets to this cream, and I am not lying 48 millilitres, so that big, 50 quid. 50 quid, even the ladies are shocked. Um, so uh, she picks up the face cream, puts it on the shelf, sorry, puts it in the um, trolley, like, you know, nothing's happened. Like, it's not 50 quid. Um, 
and carries on shopping. Now, of course, at this point, I should have just accepted that this is life and this is what happens. But instead, I couldn't help myself. There was a voice in my head. I had to follow it because that's what I'm like. So I picked up the face cream out of the trolley. I put it back on the shelf. You know where I'm going with this. Sorry, you can't have that, love. We're in a credit crunch. She said, but Rob, it makes me look beautiful. I said, well, so do 10 cans of Stella. Yeah, I'm not spending this weekend with my wife, as you can see. Anyway, enough messing around. Let's get in with the content. Okay, so I believe the foundation of any business is the vision. If you're starting, then you want to build the vision of your business. What, what's the aim and purpose of the business? Now, a lot of people, when they're looking to raise finance or they're looking to make sales, they're thinking technically, you know, where do I find the people? How do I convert the leads? And of course, those things are important. But if you have a vastly compelling vision, that will do a lot of the selling for your company. Now, I'm going to give you an example of a product vision, not necessarily a company one, which was probably the best tagline for a product that's ever been designed. And when I say it, I think you'll, you'll, you'll know what the product was. And that is 10,000 songs in your pocket, which was the first iPod. And, you know, like that's 10,000 words in your pocket. That's five words. But, you know, that sells an iPod way better than, you know, the size of the hard drive, you know, the quality of the headphones, etc. The, the data, the statistics, the facts, the benefits. This, it, it, it shows you what it does for you. And you need your business to have that same message, the vision. So Progressive's vision, Progressive Property, one of my companies, is to help as many people on the planet invest for freedom, choice, and profit. Invest for freedom, choice, and profit. Six words. And it takes a bit of time. Now, by the way, just a word of caution for those procrastinators in the room. Don't spend 18 years perfecting your vision before you go and sell a few cans of Coke or something to get some money in the bank. So don't use it as an excuse, which some people do. Still working on my vision, <laughs> 96. Um, so you can start with making a sentence and then you can just refine it until you get like a really compelling, clear statement. That is the foundation of every business. A personal computer in every home was Microsoft. All right, let's say you've got your vision and whether you've got it in five or six words or whether you know what it is, but it's just still a bit wordy, that's fine. Next then um, is strategy. I'll come to the right-hand side in a moment. Next is strategy. So that is, how are you going to execute your vision? A personal computer in every home is a vision of Microsoft. The strategy is how they get those um, PCs to market, who their end user is. Are they B2B, B2C? Do they do partnerships, affiliations, or do they go direct to the consumer? Is it a franchise, a license? Or again, do they sell direct? That, those kind of questions would be strategic questions. 
Next then is leadership. So someone's got to drive the machine. Someone's got to be the spearhead who creates the strategy, tweaks the strategy, refines the strategy, continually articulates the vision to the staff, to the customers, to the world, to the board members, to the finances. Next then is management. So management are the team who take the leader's vision and then pass that down to all the staff and then build the team to deliver the vision. Now, I didn't know this for many years. And those of you that have been in business a few years, you probably would have learned this the hard way too. Leadership and management are totally different. And usually, great leaders are terrible managers. I'd hire staff. They'd be like, hi Rob, it's my first day, what do I do? There's your desk, there's your computer, go make me some fucking money. And I thought that was good management, because I'm motivating them. And then they log on and they go, um, I don't know my password, Rob. Well, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. <laughs> I mean, what a terrible manager. Uh, a leader can inspire someone, motivate someone, you know, give someone a bit of a, a boost, some direction. A manager is, there's the health and safety manual. Here's where you go for a grievance. Here's your package for employment. Here's your career progression. This is what you do if, you know, you need to um, discreetly discuss some things in your um, manage that you that you've bleh, <laughs> my teeth are somewhere over there, etc. You get the picture. All right. So next then is sales and marketing. Chicken and egg in a way, but I would even argue that sales and marketing is more important than vision. Because you can have an amazing vision to change the world, but if you can't sell anything, that vision is just a dream. And if I were to argue which one of those comes first, I would say marketing. Because marketing is generating leads. Sales is converting leads. If your marketing isn't very good, your sales either has to be really good or it has to be somewhat pushy and outbound. If your marketing is really good, that minimizes your need for sales. If your marketing does the selling for you, like a thousand songs in your pocket is very good marketing. You don't imagine that a salesperson is going to need to spend two hours on the phone with someone to sell them an iPod. Next then we have your products and services. Obviously you've got to have something to sell. And that could be a widget, that could be information, that could be mentorship and training and education, that could be a license an invention, some IP. And then, once all that's in order, you should hopefully start making some money. Now, I probably started with that and that, with none of that, and no clue about that because I just thought that was fluff. Definitely didn't do any of that. Thought I did that, but wasn't very good at it. But made a little bit of that. Don't take a photo of me in front of the... <laughs> you want to read it? <laughs> um, so, if you're going to start with anything, 
get a minimum viable product out there and start selling some of it rather than spending years on vision and strategy and not actually putting any money in the bank. Now, of course, if you're still in a job and you've got a plan in the next 12 months to leave, you can create your vision evenings and weekends. You can design your strategy evenings and weekends. You can build a better quality product evenings and weekends. And then when you leave your job, you can start selling. But if you are in quite urgent need of money, get a minimum viable product built and then start selling it. And I was running a course yesterday, a podcast media masterclass. And the subject of masterminding and mentoring came up. And we're in a world where information is a commodity like other physical commodities now, I would argue. With so much information out there, information that has proof of being applicable and getting you results comes at a premium. And, you know, if you wanted to make a new vacuum cleaner, you might have to spend four or five years getting patents, design, product, stock, all of that stuff. That's time, energy, effort. No guarantee it's actually even going to work when you launch it. Whereas if you run some coaching, training, mentoring, masterminding, if you have people that want to buy that, you can start that next week. So I like information, IP-based business models. You don't have to stock anything. No stock. The stock is all in there. Really quick turnaround. Like if you buy stock, not only have you got the stock, but you've got cash tied in the stock. And you might have that cash tied in the stock 90 or 180 days. Whereas if you sell information-based products, let's say you're on a mastermind program, you sell someone into the mastermind program, and then it starts in six weeks. So when you hold stock, you get the money in 180 days. But when you run a mastermind, you get it 30 days in advance. So, you know, very powerful business model. And that's how, I mean, obviously I've made a lot of money in property. And people sometimes say to me, Rob, well, you know, you do all these courses and training and how much money do you make in property versus training? Like, like there's something wrong with making money in training. It's about 50-50. I'm perfectly open about that. And Mark and I have got hundreds of properties. We've got about 850 tenants. Um, we're developing about 130,000 square foot of property at the moment. So we make good money out of that. But it took us many years to make good money out of physical bricks and mortar. It took us a lot less time to make money out of our knowledge and experience. So I use that as an example of a model and a product that you can create quite quickly and you can get out to market quite quickly with little to no overhead. Now, just on that note, because I don't want, you know, 100 and how many of you are in the room? About 720. Um, <laughs> If a hundred of you go and set up a mastermind program, and how would I say this politely? You haven't been doing what you've been doing for very long. You need to create a fair exchange environment. So if you've been in your industry 20 years, and you've got hardcore experience, then that's worth thousands or tens of thousands of pounds in mentoring from you. If you've been doing it, three weeks, six months, that might be worth hundreds of pounds or less. 
But as long as you're further ahead than someone else, then you've got a legitimate case to set up some kind of information business. It's one of my favourite business models. It's like just something to think about. Okay, great. So in the vision part at the bottom, does a laser work on this? No. Um, it says market and message. So you need to have a compelling message that is received by an ideal target market. That's reflexive. I.e., a market with the wrong message, no money. Right message, no or wrong market, no money. Um, I guess in years gone by, without the internet and stuff like that, finding a market was harder. And you have to just have to go and join Facebook groups now and you can do market research in like no time at all. I actually then was trying to think about what kind of business models might not have a market. Struggle a bit. I mean, there's someone who um, in London charges minimum £5,000 for a haircut. Do you remember the slinky that went down the stairs like that? I think it's 60 million. Do you remember the Furby? I mean, these useless products that make millions of pounds. I can't imagine that there are many business models where there's not really much of a market. I mean, if you wanted to run colonic irrigation retreats in outer Mongolia for people of no sexual preference, that might be a bit of a niche market. Yeah, that wasn't my best analogy, that's what you're thinking. <laughs> okay, so what I would do if I were you is I'd try and find as many clients and customers that you've worked with in the past and try and get a profile of them i.e. why do you use us, what are the problems you're looking to solve, where did you find us from, and then I'd create a, a client avatar around that, and that's then who you go and look, search out. And um, generally speaking, finding customers is not really that hard. It's avataring someone who looks like your ideal customer based on some kind of experience, and you've got 10 years' experience in it, so you'll be able to find that out, Stefan. And if you haven't, you go in Facebook groups and you do market research in LinkedIn groups, etc. And you get this relatively clear identity. 35 to 45-year-old women who read Cosmopolitan, you know, and usually go to this event and that show. And then you advertise in those magazines and you go to those shows. And then you find more of those people. And then you just keep refining it. And then as you get really nightmare clients, you tweak your avatar and therefore don't accept those nightmare clients. And then as you get your best clients who spend the most and are the best to deal with, you double down your marketing in those areas. All good, Stefan? Yeah. All right, always a pleasure. Okay, so strategy then. Uh, your strategy is your model and your mission. If your vision is your market and your message, your strategy is your model and your mission. What's your business model? Now, by the way, if any of you in this room are not new to business, don't look at this like, oh, well, I'm five years in, so I don't need to worry about these bottom bits. You might need to reword them, redo them. Also, 
talk about model, let's discuss Blockbuster or Kodak. Because you can be 20 years old and wash your model is a good question. Some businesses don't realise what their business really is before it's too late. You know, the irony of Kodak is they invented digital photography and it sent them bust. You know, it's not like Blockbuster didn't have a chance to be Netflix. They were doing subscriptions 20 years before Netflix even existed. They just didn't pivot and embrace the new technologies. Okay, right, leadership then. There's a lot of definitions of leadership. It's very hard, isn't it, to put it into a, small, a short phrase. But, you know, there's all sorts of leaders who are doing power plays, you know, chucking their ego out all over the place, the boss, shooting off orders, you know, running the show. Whilst you can have a, a type A leader like that, I don't think they're the greatest leaders. I think the greatest leaders are leaders who develop other leaders. Yeah. Because a leader that develops other leaders can grow a global organisation that they couldn't maintain themselves. But you have to get out of people's way and you have to let them take the credit and you have to let them make mistakes when you can see them coming and other things that most entrepreneurs find difficult to let go of. But like, let's say you wanted a global enterprise. You probably, one of the best ways to build a global enterprise is to have an individual that you trust that's got experience to go and head up each country or each new office. Because if you have to go all the way around the world trying to head them all up, you're going to be running around like a headless chicken. But you've got to trust them that they can build a business in America when you're in the UK. And so they have to be self-sufficient. They have to have autonomy, but also live your values, your culture. Uh, and so um, development is constantly challenging and training and inspiring people to go from tactical to management to leadership. So it's like, you want to be like this talent factory that takes people who join it for 15, to, well, 15 is now less than the minimum wage, so 18 grand all the way up to 50 grand, 100 grand, 200 grand. I want to pay people hundreds of thousands of pounds working in my company. Because if I, if, if I pay people hundreds of thousands of pounds, it means I'm turning over millions of pounds, because otherwise I couldn't justify it. And it means that I'm never going to pay someone they're not worth. So development of salary, development of training, development of emotions. This little bit here, I say little bit, kind of like everything. So picture this scenario. You hire someone. They start doing the job really badly. You get really annoyed that they're doing the job really badly. You have to go and fix the freaking job that they've done really badly. And you're paying them to not do a job really badly. And then you're having to go and do the job as well. And you'll probably end up fixing it really badly. And the, the paradox of hiring is if you don't get out of their way, they'll never be the employee you envisage them to be. The paradox of hiring is that you have to let them make their own mistakes. The paradox of employment is you have to let them do the job their way. Sure, your culture, your values, their way. There's the saying, why have a dog and bark yourself? 
So why have a staff member and go and do their job for them? Oh, well, they're not very good at the job. Well, who hired them? Also, when you rescue a staff member, what do you actually teach them? You teach them that each time they mess up or get in trouble, you'll rescue them. So instead of going and fixing the problem themselves, they're like, oh, fuck. And then you go in and fix it. And then you just create like a victim. I was told by one of my mentors, for the first three months that you hire someone, you've got to um, basically let them make mistakes and then celebrate and reward the mistakes. And I'm like, well, fuck that. <laughs> they would have been my words. That's how we talk in Peterborough. But like, there's no staff member on the planet that's never going to make mistakes. Yes, it's on your watch. Yes, it's your brand. But anyway, something to think about. So self-emotions are how do you manage how you present yourself to your customers, your staff, your board members, your partners, your backers. And basically, the way I see good emotional management, you walk through the office, five people are talking to each other at the water cooler, you think, why don't you just get the fuck back to work? But you smile at them and say, hi. And then you carry on walking, there's three or four people on Facebook. And you think, why don't you get the fuck back to work? But you go, hi. And you walk all around the office going, hi, how you doing? Woo! When in fact, you're like, come on. But you've got to manage, as you can see, my emotions store up and then come out in therapy through talks like this. <laughs> um, if you ever lose your shit with anyone, you will pay for that. You will pay for that. Uh, and it's really hard not to, this is your business, you've built it, it's your brand. You know, we send quite a lot of emails out. Um, <laughs> we don't know each other that well yet, so you, you can't take the piss. Um, and, you know, I, I, should, I probably shouldn't reveal this publicly, but I don't mind because how else do you scale a business? And actually... Um, I'll reveal to you how it works, however it reflects on me. But I don't write most of those, but my name's on the bottom of most of those. And so therefore the typos, the mistakes, maybe the style of email that you don't like, or the frequency, that's on me, but it's not necessarily from me. But of course I'm responsible because it's my company. But like, we have 520,000 people that subscribe to our emails. So what am I going to do, write them all? How does that work? See, and this is a lovely little important phrase to write down. You have to let go to grow. And I know for all of us it's the hardest thing. You have to let go to grow. Anyone who's got a parent who sent their kids off to school, anyone who is a parent, who sent their kids off to school or university, you know that process. You know how hard it is. But you know it's the right thing. Because they've got to become you know, a man or a woman in the, in the real world. And you just have to let things go. And I, I must admit, I have become much more contented an individual and my business has been more successful the more I've let go. Because you can spend your whole day sweating and fighting on all tiny little things that don't really matter. Your energy and your time should be put into the big things that do matter. The vision, the, the strategic partners, the marketing. Uh, look, I could do a whole talk on managing your emotions. And it, like... I'm kind of very well qualified to talk about managing your emotions. 
because I've struggled with managing my emotions my whole life. But so do we all. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, he could definitely do a course on that. <laughs> and he's like the most powerful person in the world. So it's an ongoing pursuit of personal mastery. And an another mentor of mine gave me a lovely little phrase. I like the sound bites because you can write them down and remember them. The business will only grow at the speed you grow. If you suppress your staff and your managers, that suppresses the growth of the business. Whereas if you grow yourself personally, you learn to let go of things, you learn to prioritise well, that's going to reflect, that's going to cascade down into your organisation. Whether it's an organisation of you and an outsourcer part-time, or 80 staff like we have, or 800 staff, or 8,000 staff. Okay, great. So, sales and marketing, I think people get confused. Um, but before I talk about that, I'm often asked, Rob, what should be my first hires? I think that's a really good question. And I'm going to give you the choice of four or five people for your first three hires. And I've hired a lot of people and I've made a lot of recruitment mistakes as well. I mean, to many degrees, recruitment is a lottery. Because there's one profession that I think I've seen people do the best, and that's pretending to be fucking good at a job in an interview. Like, there's so many pros at being interviewed. And then, you know, sometimes they can't even hide their real them for six or eight weeks when they're going to the job. So they did an awesome job at the interview at hiding their weird-isms. Um, anyway, I digress again. Um, what the fuck was I saying? <laughs> yeah, first hires. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, all right, so... I believe you, three of your first five hires choose from these. Admin, sales, marketing, operations. And then your fifth one would be another one of those four. Admin, sales, marketing, operations. And then one other of one of those four should be your first five hires. Your first three, pick three of those. Now, a lot of startup entrepreneurs feel like they're in this paradox whereby like, I know I'm busy and I need to hire someone, but I can't afford to hire someone. And, and they get stuck in that um, like void. But what they don't realise is, it's the admin that they're doing that's blocking the money. So they think, I need the money, then I can hire. But what they need to do is unblock the admin blockages so they can turn that into income generating tasks so they can bring in the money so then they can hire the staff member. So it is a little bit of a paradox because it's, it's hard to see what hasn't materialised yet in your world. But if you're doing 20 hours a week of admin, that's 20 hours of non-income generating tasks you're not doing. Now, in your business, if you're doing, let's say you're doing 30 hours of selling and 20 hours of admin. Let's say you're 30 hours of selling a week, bring in 10 grand a month. Well, if you paid 1,500 quid a month to get rid of those 20 hours of admin, that's 80 hours a month. You put that back into your selling, it's another five, six, eight grand. But you have to take the leap of faith. But we always have to take the leap of faith. We always do. You don't plant the seed, come back the next day and go, so where's my fucking tree? <laughs> I think the, the concept of an MVP is fundamental to a business, and here's why. There's only a few industries where you need to have perfection. I would say 
um, surgery. You're not going to go to uni first semester. Screw all this shit, the theory. Give me the fucking knife. Knife. That ain't a knife. Um, a pilot. Ah, get perfect later. Whoa. Obviously. So if you're in a business where lives are at stake and health and safety is of vital importance, your perfectionism is your gift. But most of you in this room are probably not in a model like that. I'm certainly not. So in all other businesses, like 98%, I like to think about fair exchange. I'm going to come back to this in a minute and talk about fair exchange. Because the downside of an MVP is it's not ready yet. And you would argue no one wants to buy a product that's not ready yet. You could argue. But everyone would pay an incomplete product at the right money. Like you might be into watches. Let's say there's a Rolex Daytona, it's about 15 grand. You, you'd pay five grand for one maybe that needed fixing. But you wouldn't want a 15 grand one to be broken. So the fair exchange price for a broken Rolex Daytona would be five grand. And so there's a market for a broken Rolex Daytona. So you know when I was talking about masterminding, mentoring, coaching, etc., building your products quick. You just have to price them right to create fair exchange. So what you do is you create version one of your product. Now look, how much would you pay for an iPhone 3 now? 30 quid, maybe, unless they've gone retro. 30 quid, maybe. But now the, the newest high-end Apple phones, what are they, a grand, 1,500 quid? But they never would have had the 10 if they hadn't have started with the 3. And even to the point, like Porsche. Porsche are probably one of the most thoroughly tested cars that are on the road. I bought their, the new Panamera Turbo S when it came out about a year ago. It's a 175,000 pound car. Immediately, like two months after I got it, I get a letter, recall. Annoying, but they recalled it, there's a, there's a fault, they fixed it. Two months later, another recall. Annoying, they left me a courtesy car, they fixed it. So even if you launch a product, and it's a lot of money, and it's not still quite perfect, you can still fix, as long as it's not dangerous. Now these recalls weren't dangerous, but they just fixed the problem. So for you perfectionists in the room who aren't surgeons and pilots, Get an MVP product created and start selling it. I would just like to say something about selling. Selling is not a crime. There's nothing dirty about selling. Nothing. In fact, selling is a service. Every single one of us would not even be able to sustain for a day if someone didn't sell us something. And especially us English people. It's like there's something wrong and smelly about it. There is nothing wrong with selling. Like, why are you not worthy of greatness? Well, there is zero reason. You are worthy of greatness. Because everyone's worthy of greatness. No, one's, no one was born destined to not be great. Like, I've been trying for many years to work out what's the purpose of humanity. And I've got a lot of 60, 70-year-old geniuses who've been mentoring me, who've helped me get my head around this a bit. And of course, we're all learning. But I feel like 
The main purpose of humanity is evolution, i.e. to survive. I feel like that's the main purpose. As an individual, how do we contribute to survival of humanity? By self-actualization, which is becoming the best version of ourselves. Because if we self-actualize, I become the best version of ourselves, we give humanity the best chance of overall survival. And we all know we're intrinsically selfish and selfless. We know that. Because you know when someone's really in, in, in trouble, the feelings you're compelled to help them. You know that because you feel that. And you know the feeling of the raw. You know when you help someone, how good it feels? So inbuilt within us is a desire to help. But also inbuilt in with, uh, within us is a desire to self-serve and be selfish and greedy and push someone out of the way. So we're dealing with all these bal this balanced paradoxes. So if self-actualization is the individual purpose of our life, to become the best version of ourselves, that is, self-actualization, not humanity's actualization, because humanity's actualization is based on each individual self-actualizing. So what does that mean? That means, one, you becoming the best version of you is your purpose in the wider humanity. Two, we all have individual greatness potential. Because humanity isn't, doesn't need seven billion basketball players. Humanity needs seven billion individuals that all equally contribute in different ways. You need the janitor and the billionaire. You need the producer and the consumer. So break all that down. This is what it tells me. One, your destiny is self-actualization and there is individual greatness latent within you, which is your purpose of life. And sorry if I've, I'm not even on the fucking roadmap. Sorry. <laughs> that was a, the biggest tangent I've done in three and a half years. Uh, right, so let's back to the roadmap. You have your idea, you create a vision, you get some desperation and motivation, you start your business, you create a minimum viable product, you start selling it on Facebook groups to your contacts. And rejection, what's rejection? Because I'm going to go and sell my um, product to the world. Now, at the stage two, the startup phase, your enthusiasm, your elasticity are your main attributes, your drivers, your um, gifts, if you like. What's elasticity? Okay, I'm um, going to try and sell my product in this Facebook group today. That didn't really work. I'll leave that. I'll go and sell it in this one tomorrow. Ah, I've just got to fix this as a bug. I'll fix that. I'll sell that tomorrow. Uh, wait a minute. We've just got to redesign it. I'll fix that. I'll sell that tomorrow. It's being able to pivot. Like when you're a massive organisation, oh, you want to change the colour at the Pantone of the logo? That'll go to the board. We'll answer you in two and a half years' time. So that's, so by the way, there's upsides of obviously being a billion pound company, but you don't have elasticity, flexibility. Now, you'll miss it when it's gone. So those of you that want a bigger business, which is all of us, you will miss that when it's gone. Because I miss it. Because I'm very impatient as an entrepreneur, as I'm sure you are. And sometimes I'm like, how long does it take? I miss the, whatever that is. So enthusiasm. I mean, man, if you can't get enthusiastic about your product, about your service, about your idea, if you can't chuck that energy out into the world, man, you're in the wrong business. You're in the wrong business. Now, something about enthusiasm. When people set up their business, what do they think they need? Oh, well, resources like money. But the best resources when you start a business are, and you want to write these down, one, creativity. Two, resourcefulness. Three, enthusiasm stroke energy. 
innovation, ability to solve problems, flexibility. All of those are free. They are latent within every human being. Every human being has those resources to hand out infinite potential. Okay. Now, in stage two, you don't have experience yet, the dark blue. So that, you know, like, a lot of people when they stop, oh, I don't have an experience, I can't really do anything about it. Well, you don't have experience until you have experience, which is a paradox. But of course, every master was once a disaster and every winner was once a beginner. So you just have to get through that first few years or first few months if you're quick and build the experience as you go. Every day you get new experience. But you can't play that card. But I can tell you this, in 10 years when you can play the experience card, you probably aren't using resourcefulness, flexibility, innovation, creativity, enthusiasm, energy. You know like when people say, oh, I've been in this business for 30 years. <laughs> well, I'm more enthusiastic than you. Yeah. All right, great. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the stages and then I'm going to talk about the wavy line of the income. So um, we'll, we'll come back to that. So stage three then is the chaos stage. So you had the idea, you start it up, you've sold some stuff and then holy shit, you've got to deliver all this stuff that you sold. You're getting customer service, you're getting emails all the time, you're getting messages on social media. You're overwhelmed. And there is always a chaos stage in business. No matter how planned and prepared and cautious and systemized you are. But that's also a sign of growth. So it has an upside. If you're trying to hire staff, trying to do the website, trying to do the marketing, going on courses, you're trying to get mentors, trying to fix problems, writing the brochures, juggling all the, everyone's like, yeah, that's me, that's my hobby, everything. Juggling all the social media channels, trying to get laid. Okay, that was a no. Uh, family as well, trying to have a social life. What's one of those? That's the chaos stage. By the way, it does end, but you have to end it. It doesn't just go away. And there's something you've got to remember. Write this down. You've got to remember this. You created it. So you know when you get a load of inbox inquiries and you just want to be like, leave me alone. Well, you created it. I set up a WhatsApp group for my supporter. Who's a, a supporter, a Rob Moore supporter in the room? Okay, so Facebook have just started. Thank you, by the way. Very grateful. I don't know if you saw what happened. Um, but Facebook have set up a new supporter programme, basically where followers of creators, innovators, influencers, etc., can pay a very small premium and get exclusive content discounts, etc. And I chucked a load of extra bonuses in because I wanted to have the best supporter programme in the world. So I did a WhatsApp group for the first 256 people, a one-to-one -one call twice a year for 10 minutes for the first um, 100 people, ask me anything once a week, bon I did a lot. Anyway, it went a bit wild. Um, and I set up the WhatsApp group and it filled with 256 people in, I think, something like 11 minutes. And it's just... And I'm, I'm going to be honest, because it's important. I just looked at it and I went, will you all just fuck off? <laughs> You're all just like... Ah! You're all... Ah! Message, message, no... And then I thought, wait a minute, I set up the group. <laughs> be cool. <laughs> So then I did the rules, then I did the rules again, and it's, it'll calm down. It's all good. 
Uh, but remember, you, you, you cause everything in your business. You attract everything in your business, including all the good stuff. So it's your responsibility to fix it. Now, so what happens in the chaos stage? Shit starts to break. Systems break. Staff, I've broke so many staff. I mean, I don't mean to. I suppose, you know, if you have a, a mule and you put enough on it, its back will break. Um, I, and I'm much better now, but yeah, it still happens like it did last week. Um, but yeah, breakage, systems, software, people, your reputation. Because, you know, if you sell too much too fast and you don't deliver, then you're going to have some breakage to your reputation. So your job is to create it and then fix it. Now, if you're really planned and pre prepared, and uh, let me just move forward before I come back, you will do stage four, which is systemizing, as you do go through stage three. But the reason I've put, I mean, in theory, the smart play would be to do this. It would be to have stage one idea, stage two startup, stage three systems, stage four chaos. But then you probably wouldn't have chaos. But the reason it's this way round is because you've probably read Emith. You've probably read Built to Sell. You've probably read Work the System. You've probably read business books on systemizing your business and scaling your business. And you're probably not doing most of it. And what I find with entrepreneurs is, no matter how much they've learned about systems, they always get into chaos first. So it's just the reality of what happens. Um, so if someone were to ask me, what is a strength of mine? I might say my ability to come up with ideas. That is also my biggest weakness because too many ideas overwhelms people. And if you're good at coming up with ideas, the reality is most of them are shy. To be great at creating good ideas, you have to be great at creating even more shite ones. So the paradox of life, I've used that word a lot, but I think it's a really, in all my research, I think if we're looking for black or white, or good or bad, or right or wrong, I think we're looking in the wrong place. In all your strengths lies all your weaknesses simultaneously. They, you cannot separate them. If someone is analytical, then of course that's great when you're evaluating a property or writing software, but your analytical nature is gonna mean you take ages and you're slow and you're sometimes frustrating to finish stuff. You know, like if you t talk to people who employ coders, the only thing coders don't do is finish. They never finish. Because they're always fiddling. But it's their fiddling that creates the code. Okay, right, stage four then is the systems stage. So here you are process, you are consistent, you are automated or you're trying to achieve that. The correct order, the workflow, the automation, the lack of duplication and leakage and breakage. That's what the system stage is. Now, many entrepreneurs struggle with that because that can be, it can be anti the personality of many entrepreneurs. Boring, which is what a couple of you have said. Now, some people love the systems and processes, but they're often not leaders. So this is what we've got to deal with. It's the boring part of the business, but the boring part of anything is really important. And we have to be careful not to just look for the exciting stuff. You know, don't HR and the staff handbook might not be important to you, but it is to your staff. 
So, you know, how you do the boring is also how you do the exciting. How you do anything is how you do everything. Now, something I've tried to develop, and it works for me, it's, I'm kind of good at it because it's intrinsically part of my personality, but I think you should model this. The things that you love to do, do. The things that you hate to do, outsource. So I don't do systems, process, automation. I ask my team to do systems, process, and automation, and I hire people who are better at systems, process, and automation. Because if I had to do that, one, I'd hate it, so I'd start to hate my business, and two, it would take me away from vision, strategy, sales, and everything else. So throughout the course of your journey in business, you, you pick off, hire out, leverage out the areas of weakness of yours or disdain, the things you dislike. And that's the great thing about business, you get to do that because that's what your staff do. So in stage four, the system stage, you're looking for structure. That's what you're creating. Stru and that structure, you know what? I kind of don't really like structure, but structure is necessary. Like, I, need, I have a very clear, very clear diary structure. And I'm not the sort of person that likes a diary structure. That's why I need it. You know, a lot of companies of the last sort of couple of decades are like, oh, well, we don't really have an organisational structure. But you kind of need at least one layer of management. You couldn't have 50 people come to you. Okay, and then the downside when you systemise your business is it can become a bit cold and missionistic, a bit soulless. If it's, if it's over-systemised, it's just a conveyor belt rather than... What you don't want to lose when you systemise your business is the personal touch. You don't want to lose the culture, the values. Thank you.